All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, we've got Vizwa Kalaru on the show today. For listeners not familiar with Vizwa, who is he? Yeah, Vizwa is the founder and CEO of Inveda Biosciences. Uh, Inveda is a relatively young company that is doing some really interesting work in terms of uh, applying artificial intelligence and machine learning to uh, translate nature into medicine, which is which is their tagline. So they're essentially harnessing the complexity of the natural world to try to come up with new advancements in uh, drug targets for developing novel therapeutics. So um, I'm really excited to talk to Viswa today about not only the science of what they're doing and the, the technology and the merging of those two disciplines. I think Viswa will have a really unique perspective there. Uh, I also want to talk to him about sort of this, this higher level sh- you know, movement of uh, what has become known as sort of the tech bio revolution. And so that, that again is sort of this convergence of biology with technology, things like engineering, uh, software development, um, that's a lot of what they're doing at Inveda. And the other point that I'm really excited to talk to Viswal about is uh, culture and leadership when it comes to building an innovative biotech company. There are a number of companies using AI and drug discovery in one fashion or another today. What makes what Inveda is doing so compelling to you? Danny, what I love about Inveda's approach is that they are applying a stack of modern technology to enhance something that humanity has really been doing for thousands of years. So I'm going to put my professorial hat on here for a second. But if you think about uh, our very first medicines were discovered in the natural world. For example, ancient Egyptians and Sumerians used the bark of the willow tree to treat pain 3,500 years ago. If you fast forward to today, it's that active ingredient from willow bark called salicin which form the basis of the active ingredient in aspirin, the most commonly used drug in the world today. If you fast forward and think about the advent of penicillin, or really the discovery of penicillin, it was the result of a serendipitous discovery. Uh, I believe it was Alexander Fleming in 1928. But you know, penicillin now is one of the most widely used antibiotics in the world and has saved countless lives. You know, finally, I'll, I'll just mention during medieval times, the apothecary came about to take advantage of this idea of compounding or combining different molecules based on various chemical properties to create new compounds that had some sort of desired effect. So the, the apothecary during medieval times was really the precursor to the modern pharmaceutical industry. 
just as a quick aside, Jorge Conde does, uh, gives a great talk, which is available on YouTube, that dives more into some of this history uh, and, and gives A16's point of view about how things are, are moving forward. But I, I want to tie this back to Inveda. And what Inveda is doing, at least to me, represents the next evolution in humanity's quest to harness the natural world to create medicines. So, Danny, you asked what they're doing differently. Well, I think really what Inveda is doing differently, based on my understanding, is that they are systematizing the process by using advanced artificial intelligence and machine learning. And they're doing all this in a much higher throughput fashion and higher throughput way than has previously ever been possible. So to me, that is what is so exciting about Inveda. You mentioned that beyond the technology, you're interested in talking to Bizwa about leadership. Why is that? Yeah, he's, he's pretty active on LinkedIn in terms of uh, some of his posts, posts about building culture, the role of uh, a leader in, in, in building a, a, a company that's based on science. And so I think this area is often uh, overlooked. People get so excited about the science and the technology. I think people often forget about uh, the importance that leadership and culture plays in building a successful company of any kind. Um, and so I think it's it, it's going to be really interesting to get uh, Viswas' perspective on the role culture plays, uh, his role as a leader, and, and what he feels are his primary responsibilities. Because you know, with without building a successful culture where people feel like they can conduct and be successful in their their scientific journeys, right, the company's doomed to fail. And I think not enough attention is pay, paid to some of these. I guess what I would call them sort of softer skills, um, but I think they're really critical to building a successful organization. Well, if you're all set. Let's do it, Danny. Hi, Viswa. I'd first like to extend a warm welcome and say a big thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. My pleasure. So today we're going to talk about Inveda Biosciences how you're capitalizing on the planet's biodiversity to discover new drugs uh, and the role artificial intelligence plays in your approach. In addition to scratching the surface on the technology you're developing, I've been really impressed with your LinkedIn posts about the importance leadership and culture play in building a biotech company. So I also wanna make sure we have a chance to talk about this super important but often overlooked area when it comes to building a science-based company. You know, people tend to get really excited for good reason about the science and the technology and sometimes forget about all the other critical components that factor into doing high quality science and really creating an environment where your team can thrive and be successful. So I want to make sure we have a chance to talk about that as well. So enough from me. Let's dive into your background a little bit, Viswa. So before founding Inveda, you led cross-functional teams at Recursion which is one of the early leaders in applying AI to drug discovery and is one of the first movers in what has more recently become known as tech bio. So before mm -hmm. we dive into the specifics, for our listeners, can you explain what the term tech bio means since it's still relatively new and, and probably still relatively unknown to most of our listeners? Absolutely, Neil. Yeah, and I'm sure tech bio, uh, as you've mentioned, means a lot of things to different people. And it's an emerging term that carries a lot of excitement behind it. So I'm happy to weigh in with my opinion. For me, tech bio ha carries one fundamental difference, which is that technology and technology-assisted um, hypotheses are actually what drive drug discovery and not really, you know, rational 
bottom up thinking that has that is traditionally driven how we think about biological systems and what hypotheses to pursue and for me this is interesting because it goes hand in glove with two things one with a new business model of platform companies where technology is actually the central play it's the differentiator and it's what the what the companies actually hold dear but also continue to invest time and development dollars in and closely related to what makes technologies differentiated over the long term is data modes so just like you know facebook has a massive data mode for for selling ads or google does i think um, closely related to making technology the center point of your company is thinking about what kinds of data collected in what specific manner that ultimately give you an an algorithmic advantage that makes your technology the best for me you know this is the core layer of what it means to do tech bio and uh and you know an additional layer that i think we more commonly interact with is that this particular way of being about problem especially biology if you will has garnered interest of a new class of investors who of course seen amazon dominate e-commerce facebook dominate social networks and google dominate search and and these investors are used to you know a a a kind of company culture and found a founder entrepreneur combination that the biotech space has traditionally not seen at least in the not, last two or three decades um and so yeah and there's a proud uh, tech bio company just like recursion was and Viswal, I think you, you you really dived into a lot of really important points that I want to double click on during our conversation. Um, let's let's just start with where do you think we are in terms of the promise versus potential of applying artificial intelligence to drug discovery and drug development? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of hype out there. Um, where do you think the reality lies mm-hmm. today? Yeah, and I think. the the great thing about hype is that it is uh by definition excitement about the future uh and i think a large amount of um of that in my mind is warranted uh especially as you know we've seen that things like self driving which have traditionally been very very hard to program in to rules um have made massive progress due to ai like i like to define it as whenever there are patterns that emerge when a larger part or portion of the data set is examined um that's when ai does really well and i can't think of a more complex system than biology right um we frequently are surprised by what we don't know about disease what we don't know about even very well studied drugs and when both of those classes of things come together um so i am extremely bullish on what ai and drug discovery can can actually deliver for patients in terms of in terms of um actual promise delivered i'd say yeah we're in the early stages of it uh and there will be you know i think d- there will be some stutters along the way uh but overall i think the graph is headed upward and to the right and biswat let, let's go back to your time at recursion you led cross functional teams there uh as as you know we had talked about they were one of the sort of early companies that were applying ai to drug discovery and and development can can you talk a little bit about what you learned during your time at recursion and how that maybe has led and informed what you're now doing at inveda 
Yeah. Funnily enough, I think my biggest lessons from recursion weren't about a particular technology or an algorithm, but about that interplay between technology and humanity, if you will, or technology and culture. Um, so the biggest takeaway for me was that there is, by default, a ton of dogma in the way we do things. Um, you know, there's this phrase that's always used in companies. That's the way we've always done things or in industries uh, and learning to distinguish between, you know, which of those were actually lessons that have a valuable, you know, set of experiences behind them and which of those are just dogma, I think is, is really the key thing that I learned and, and the relative proportion of just things that are dogma, I think was was something that surprised me, you know, inherent to that is, is, you know, something that, that, um, that I'd like to clarify is lots of things that we do um, as a species and as a scientific community, if you will, actually is in that dogma. And we, we regularly uncovered this. So for me, this really led to first principles thinking. The second big lesson was this realization that while great science and technical progress is exciting, as you mentioned, the ideas that gain the most momentum actually straddle business impact, technical progress, and human benefit. Uh, and learning to think about how society is benefited from a particular technology and actually shepherding it to that point of impact, I think, uh, I think was the second you know, takeaway, especially given the urgency that you, that you naturally feel around startups. The third um, is actually that, you know, we think a lot about whether a particular idea has been done before. Uh, but really, you know, entrepreneurship is much more about initiative and execution than it is about innovation, right? I posted about this on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. Google wasn't the first search engine. Facebook wasn't the first social network. You know, recursion wasn't the first company to use microscopes in drug discovery. But there are, but there's a magic to executing that will actually eventually then lead to innovation within that space. And standing on the shoulders of all that prior work is actually an advantage, not a disadvantage. So I'd say those were those were my biggest lessons on uh, during my time at Recursion. Well, I think that there's a lot that I'd like to dive into there. But you, you mentioned one point in particular that I just want to spend a minute on, and that's this sense of urgency. So you know, at Recursion, if I recall, they they sort of began their journey with a focus on repurposing drugs for rare diseases. You know, as you deal with these patient communities, there is often a sense of urgency that drug developers feel that, that really drives them as, as a company. Um, I know from a personal perspective, you had a personal connection with um, the patient experience as your mother battled leukemia. And you've talked about this publicly before. How has that shaped your, your, your daily work life? Did that change the way you thought about what you wanted to do for, for a living and a career? You know, absolutely. Um, I was born in a middle-class family in South India and the top, top of the picking order is you're either a physician or you become a software engineer in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I was well on my path to fulfilling that societal dream when my mother fell ill. And, you know, as you mentioned, I spoke about this before, but for me, the patient experience was really tied to having medicines um, those medicines working, being able to afford those medicines and ultimately, you know, fluctuate between a state, state of hope and despair. So for me, 
medicines really signified hope. Uh, and it's so easy, I think, to um, when, when it's not your problem or your family, um, to think about um, to think about patients, but not really feel the empathy. But I think drawing us back inside all technology and the funding and all of that, drawing us back to our own lives where we care for, tend, love, uh, and, and go through this journey of open despair with folks in our life that are battling illness, I think is, is really you know, the core of, of my being and my motivation. And that's why you know, we have an ambitious uh, technical uh, vision of mapping every chemical on planet Earth but our mission is so you know it's profound influence in how I made choices um, moving into biology moving into a sort of so I can cheat and have more impact than you know my experience would otherwise allow me to um, and ultimately I'll get to and so and it's been a phenomenal journey and, uh, and I've been drawn that experience. Viswan, let's um, dive into, you mentioned sort of the, the, the core hypothesis that you're working on at Inveda. Could you talk a little bit about the, the platform that you've built, the core scientific rationale and the core scientific rationale behind it? Love to understand sort of how the, the, the process works. For example, what are the inputs? What are, what are the outputs of the system? You know, when I was at Recursion, um, as I mentioned, we thought a lot about dogma and first principles. So the idea for Enveda originated in this simple realization that in spite of spending millions of dollars and years, um, you know, nine in 10 uh, drugs fail in the clinic during clinical trial. And to me, that wasn't a surprise once you frame that in the context of well, humans are, you know, mice are not humans with tails, right? And a lot of our laboratory systems are actually contrived in a manner that perhaps don't capture the complexity of the human body or even the human environment. Uh, and so I asked myself, well, you know, humanity for nearly 50,000 years across cultures and geographies has used plants as medicine. And understanding how these different plants interacted with symptoms has of course given us drugs like aspirin for inflammation, which, uh, which Aristotle wrote about, uh, or artemisinin, which is the Nobel Prize winning discovery for malaria from sweet wormwood in traditional Chinese medicine. And much, much more recently, actually, when I was at recursion, the approval of cannabidiol for the treatment of seizures in two rare diseases. Um, and interestingly, um, cannabidiol or you know, cannabis extract had been used for seizures over 5,000 years ago. Uh, by the Chinese and first published about in 1840. So Enveda was born out of this idea that there are hundreds, if not thousands of other such aspirins that we can find in the plant world if we can systematically unearth these connections. And when I came this, right, I quickly came to the realization that I wasn't the first genius uh, that wanted to do this idea. And actually there was a tremendous body of work in natural products and especially trying to get priors or from the way people used it or the idea of reverse translation. But there were two main things that really blocked this idea from taking off. One was that we did not have a way to prioritize any of these connections. So, you know, different cultures use different plants for different symptoms. There's of course a lot of, lot of signal, but there's a lot of noise. 
because none of these studies were placebo controlled, if you will. Uh, and the second was that even if we did know how to prioritize a particular plant or species of plants for, for some biology, we, we really didn't know what was in them. So here's a staggering fact. More than 95% of, of the chemical space on, in, on planet Earth. That means you know, plants, fungi, microbes, your blood, my blood, uh, is a complete chemical mystery. As in, we know there's compounds, we know there's a certain mass of these compounds, but we have no idea what the structure of these compounds is. And, and not knowing how to you know, handle this dark chemical space essentially led to you know, the industry moving away from, from natural products. So the core thesis for, for Renveda is if we can map out these compounds in nature, we can play in a biochemical space and use essentially you know, millennia of human experience to drive you know, the discovery of compounds that will ultimately yeah, deliver, deliver hope and of course benefit to patients uh, at a rate faster than the industry is doing today. Um, and so those are the two, two main data sets and technologies that, that we're building. And I'll go into the second part of your um, question of inputs and outputs, but I'll stop there just in case you, know, you wanted to throw in a comment no, I think that's great. I, um, I have another question that, uh, that comes up, but let's dive into the inputs and outputs and I'll reserve my question for, for a minute. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the unknown chemistry part, um, that's the part where we're essentially building a search engine for new chemistry based on, uh, based on a technology or a data, data mode called metabolomics. Um, and, and, you know, humans have used metabolomics for a while, even though there have been some cutting edge improvements in the hardware recently. Uh, but, but the real difference there is being able to use machine learning to interpret this metabolomics data. So breaking it down to very simple things, um, you know, you use an instrument called a mass spectrometer to separate um, compounds in a sample. Uh, and, and essentially see how they break apart when they're hit with ionizing radiation. And the pattern in which they break apart tells you something about the actual compound and its structure in terms of the various bonds. And, and traditionally, you know, humans, um, while there have been some experts that can pull a lot of information from a mass spectrum, humans have found that alone to be, to be insufficient to try and characterize the structure of these compounds. Uh, and our platform is teaching computers essentially how to read and write the language of chemistry by, uh, by analyzing these fragments and predicting what the structure is. So, you know, that's the core piece of, the, of trying to illuminate this dark chemical space, which involves, you know, cataloging mass spec data, annotating them with structures, and then analyzing them by actually running these compounds in biological experiments. So we call that uh, our metabolomic search engine. And the second bit, actually, actually then is, is something called a knowledge graph, or we call that the BioEdge platform. This is uh, essentially humanity's single, single largest source of truth of how, of how humans have used plants for different symptoms throughout history. Um, so we digitized it um, and we, we made it essentially uh, interoperable. 
Um, so plants, so we have data of about 23,000 plants in 16 million relationships with, you know, defined medically, you know, consistent symptomatic terminology and all the data that is known about the biology they drive. So our search engine illuminates new compounds and our BioEdge platform ties them to new diseases. Uh, and, and we're finding, you know, true to our expectation that the rate at which we get, you know, compounds, promising compounds for extremely difficult diseases that work in later stages of preclinical development uh, is very, very exciting, which to a large extent drove, you know, the $51 million raise you spoke about. So, Biswal, there, there's an awful lot to dive into there, but I want to tie it back to an earlier point that you had made. And, and that was that, you know, the, the, the vision, the hypothesis is, is obviously important, but execution is, is really uh, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Um, you know, you've right. talked a little bit about the decentralized structure that you have at Inveda, mm-hmm. which I think is, is somewhat unique, certainly relatively new for biotech companies. I think a lot of companies have sort of moved in that direction uh, because of the right. pandemic. But could you talk a little bit about how this sort of decentralized company structure um, works for a biotech that is working on this you know, really cutting edge novel technologies and, and maybe some of the advantages or disadvantages that you face in this approach? Absolutely. You know, the, the funny story was um, we, we were decentralized initially because one, we had you know, a small pre-seed round and and we didn't want to spend all our money on rent in San Francisco. Uh, and two, it felt like there was, it felt to me like there was no reason, you know, humans couldn't be trusted to do the work uh, that they were hired to do just because they didn't walk into the office every day. But it's been very, very interesting to kind of straddle that through the pandemic. It obviously gave us a massive advantage because even though we were small, we had a culture and a set of systems that set us up for success. Uh, and, you know, coming to the advantages, um, I think the biggest one is we're able to scale quickly um, by allowing people to essentially work where they are. We're able to go after the best talent and go to them instead of asking them to append their lives and move to a particular city, no matter how great it is. Right. Uh, and, and this, I think, has uh, has given us a huge advantage, especially tying it back to the concept of urgency for impact and an urgency for movement, especially that you have in a startup. Um, so scaling quickly, hiring great talent. The next big one um, is actually something I've always intuitively thought about, um, but seen it pan out. And then I went and dug up actually some studies um, showing that it's not surprising at all. But this idea that you know, human beings work really well and the average problem solving capacity of a group is greater than that of any one person. But what, what, typic, what studies actually found repeatedly was that the best solution uh, from a group is actually worse than the best solution from any one person. So while more problems are able to be solved faster, the solutions actually are less elegant. Uh, and this is, of course, apparent in, in all the studies of groupthink bias. So, um, in fact, at Enveda, we find that interacting and then going away in isolation and working uh, gives us the best of both worlds. Is we problem solve together, but then we assign a person to come up with the best solution. And, and, and we found that we were, we are actually extremely productive 
but also we break a lot of dogma uh, and we think of creative ideas that makes even the rest of the group go, huh, I really didn't think of it that way. And, and funnily enough, you know, this 2018 study from Harvard that was published in the PNAS came to the exact same conclusion that I think their exact words were, the results imply that technologies and organizations should be redesigned to intermittently isolate people from each other's work for best collective performance in solving complex problems. Um, so, you know, that's been, that's been an upshot that I hadn't expected um, to actually pan out, which has been great. In terms of disadvantages, uh, I think, you know, physical distance, uh, communication latency, these are all intuitive first order disadvantages that people frequently cite. But really the core disadvantage in my opinion um, is, is the time it takes to build trust, right? At the end of the day, we're human beings and you need to know if you can call up someone at 2 a.m. in the night because your presentation is due and you don't understand something. Uh, and people become friends when they spend time together in person and people don't know how to become friends fast enough in the virtual world. Um, and that's why I've made it my top priority to create systems, behaviors, nudges for us to build trust quickly. Uh, and I think then all of the other first order um, disadvantages actually kind of disappear because you do respond to, you know, a friend's text no matter when it comes. Um, so yeah, that's that's been my experience, but we're all constantly learning and it's been a fun journey. So I, I want to dive into that that last point because I think that really hits uh, on culture. And you know, I've seen this across the the sort of the spectrum of companies that are sort of merging the the, the biology with the you know engineering software disciplines. How do you think about building a culture from a leadership perspective when you are merging these these different disciplines? Right, it's it's biologists interacting with software engineers. And oftentimes these groups seem to speak different languages. How do you think about building a cohesive culture? Yeah, um, Neil, that's a very pertinent question because I think in the end it comes down to, you know, a second part of that, uh, the second side of that coin of trust is, is communication. And um, it's definitely, I think, a challenge that that companies in this space shouldn't ignore because we all famously quote the telephone game of how things can change. But imagine a telephone game where people don't even speak the same language, but they're supposed to listen to a word and transmit it, right? Uh, and so that's basically, I think, what companies in this space deal with. But the answer, I think, is simply lies in recognizing that, in recognizing that people are coming from a different place. Um, so when they present themselves at work, they really are a, a summation of their life's experiences, their training, uh, and their biases, privileges, and prejudices, if you will. Um, and so what we've done at Enveda from actually we, we wrote down our first value when we were about five people. Um, which is typically earlier, I think, than, than the average company try, writes or pens down their, their, uh, their culture or their creed. But we have several that emphasize communication and first principles thinking. For example, you know, I think the second ever value we wrote was over-communicate and follow up by default. The third one is no question or comment is incorrect, silly or stupid. Uh, the fourth one is listen to, learn from, grow with, and help grow your team. So you see a pattern here 
uh, and that is, you know, acknowledging these differences, um, asking people to come in every day with a beginner's mindset, and encouraging and rewarding behaviors that that allow people to, you know, get on the same page without feeling like, you know, they're somehow compromising their professional standing. And Ms. Wallace, it's obvious you've, you've thought deeply about the, the role of culture or the responsibility of leadership in, in building a cohesive culture, which should hopefully ultimately lead to building a successful company. Um, you, you've talked a bit about this publicly on, on LinkedIn, but what do you view as your primary responsibility as a leader? Yeah, um, so I think the difference between founding and being a CEO is it's actually quite huge. Uh, as a founder, you really are, you know, trying to make a crazy idea reality. You're running through walls and you're executing at all costs. But I think as your team starts to grow, your company becomes real and you step into the shoes of a CEO, you really shouldn't be doing that much, right? Um, I'd like to think of it as a shift from doing to deciding to inspiring. But if you ask me, you know, what are the top three bullet points in my job description, I'd say number one is creating the culture or setting the tone for how things are done, how people need to behave, the reward, the behaviors that are rewarded and those that are not. Um, the second one I'd say is, um, is asset allocation. So deciding what, what work needs to be done and by whom. Uh, and I had a post recently about um, about not just blaming the fish, but also looking at the water. Uh, and for me, this actually is another area where where uh, where there's a lot of untapped opportunity. For example, we don't typically ask, you know, is this person going to do better in another set of circumstances or a set of responsibilities as often as we label someone as either a high performer or not? And so for me, that, that is a very important piece, which is deciding you know, who does what work or, or also training my managers to think about that uh, rather than going down you know, the more intellectually lazy path of saying, okay, you know, these people are great and these people aren't. Um, the third piece I think is, is also another extension of, of the first two, which is recruiting. Uh, it's, it's both, making sure that the world-class talent we've hired at Enveda is doing their life's best work and is retained, but also, you know, furthering our mission and getting more amazing people to make slightly irrational bets, right? We should have, the way I think about it is the people we hire should elicit a reaction of, well, they had no business getting that person. And I think I've been lucky enough that I've been I've been able to evoke that you know a dozen times if you will since the starting of Inveda, but to continue to do that uh, and get great people in the room to solve what I think is a is a very important problem as as my three big three big uh, job description items. Yeah, and and you know you, you hit on a lot of good points there. And there's there's one that jumps out to me particularly, and it reminds me of a of a, an amazing uh, book that I read uh, probably a few years ago at this point, but Good to Great that talks about how to go from being a good organization to what it takes to becoming a great organization. And one of the primary responsibilities in, in, in that book that they attribute to leadership, which you hit on, is not only making sure that you have the right people on the bus, but making sure you have the right people on the bus in the right seats. 
Um, and so it sounds like you, you've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, Mr. we have a lot of, um, I think, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, scientists who are interested in, in potentially starting a biotech company as listeners uh, to this podcast. What advice would you offer to, to the you know, scientists, early entrepreneurs in their journey as they set out to build uh, new biotech companies? You know, what, what have you learned along your journey? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'd say three main things. Uh, and this was just from a lot of introspection as I made some difficult, uh, at that time, what felt like difficult life decisions, right? Leaving an exciting company, embracing the fear of the unknown um, and the financial risk that comes with it. Uh, but I'll boil it down to three things. So one is life rewards you for what you do, not what you know, right? Um, and so if you have an idea, you should do it uh, because there will be a day in the future when you regret not taking that leap. The second is just because you've decided that you should do it, you can't expect that everyone will believe in your idea, but they also don't need to. Um, and, and I think that's the tough part. But if you think about where where unexpected gains come from, or you know, alpha, as they say in the investment world, it's actually from ideas that most people think won't work. Um, and so, if you're hearing that you know what you're working on is an obviously good idea from everyone, then you're not pushing the boundaries enough. Uh, so rejoice when you hear a no, uh, and don't take that as a data point for you uh, for you if you are in case of reevaluating your decision. The third one actually is, is to invest in the process uh, and not worry about the outcome. So the world is an insane mix of decision quality and randomness. But I think the split between both of those is 5% and 95%. So you might, be, you can, and you probably will do your best, but if you attach yourself to the results, which you know, are more often than not way out of your hands, then you won't really enjoy the ride. So, you know, those are my, those are my three principles. And I think they're as applicable to a high growth CEO as, uh, as someone who's starting out. So yeah, I'm, I'm, thank you for the opportunity to, for me to share them and for indulging me. Oh, my pleasure. I think there, there's a lot of good things to dive into there. And, and again, I'll just reference another book based on your comment, uh, a book by Annie Duke, Thinking in Bets. And she really does hit on this point of divorcing the outcome from the process. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so that, I think that last point is, is really critical. Um, and you, you, know, you can have a, a luck play such a big role in, in everything that we do. Um, and I think if you, ha- if you have a sound process, then you, you know, hopefully more times than not, you'll have a good outcome, but not always because bad right. luck could play a role sometimes, but it's really important to sort of divorce the outcome from, from the process. So really appreciate that, that perspective. Um, Viswa, if, if people want to learn more about um, you know, this sort of tech bio space or what you're doing, doing specifically at Inveda, um, if they're looking to learn more about sort of entrepreneurship, are there a couple uh, sort of favorite resources that, that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, um, you know, I think um, following um, some of the top investors um, in this space, you know, and the content they put out, uh, and this is not scripted, but I'd say podcasts like this uh, and Twitter accounts uh, are actually really, really, um, I'd say the favorite place for me to learn what's happening at the edges of how people are thinking about what not just technology, 
but how it's uh, but how it's applied to um, to humanity's progress, uh, if you will. And if people want to learn more about about Inveda or myself, uh, and would love to reach out, you know, I have a uh, I have an open uh, LinkedIn, and I respond to almost every message I get. Um, so I'm just at LinkedIn dot com slash in slash Vishwakoluru V I S W A C O L L U R U. Oh, Biswa, with that, I think we could probably talk for another two days straight about some of these topics. They're, they're just endlessly fascinating, but I do want to be respectful of your time. And I want to say a huge thank you for, I think, what turned out to be a really wide ranging and insightful discussion today. So thank you so much for, for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. I look forward to the next time. Neil, what did you think? Yeah, I thought that was a, a really uh, wide-ranging discussion with Biswa. I think we, we hit on all sort of the key points that I was excited to touch upon. And, you know, I think he really does bring a unique perspective uh, in terms of, um, you know, leading a, a company that's really at the forefront of this convergence of, of biology with technology. Um, you heard us really only barely scratch the surface in terms of the technology that they're developing. Um, but, you know, I was really, uh, really enthusiastic about some of his comments uh, about the role of culture and leadership, this idea of building a decentralized biotech company. I think a lot of those things are not talked about enough in our industry and are just really critical to the success of an organization. Well, as you think about this emerging tech biotech area, do you see these companies having unique cultures? I, I do very much. You know, you heard Biswa talk about some of the attributes of some of these companies, and it's not just the technology disciplines, right? It's not just about merging, you know, software engineers and software development with biologists. I mean, that, that, that's part of it. But it's also, I think, in many ways, a cultural shift as well. I mean, it, in many ways, it's almost applying sort of the, the, the tech playbook to building a biotech or healthcare company. And so there, there are big cultural differences there. Um, you heard a lot of uh, Vsauce comments about fighting against sort of the central dogma of drug discovery, drug development. So that's certainly one thing. I think, you know, you're seeing in many ways um, just from the investor perspective, that there are different um, ownership structures in, in many ways when it comes to uh, the founding team retaining a more uh, a higher percentage of, of companies um, in this tech biospace than in the biotech space, for example. Um, traditionally, a lot of the, or not traditionally, but typically a lot of the tech bio type companies are founded by younger founders uh, as well. So there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just the technology. There's a whole sort of ethos and culture behind this shift. And I think Biswa did a really, a really nice job articulating some of those points. Separate from the culture, there's kind of a tech and biotech challenge this company has. From a tech side, you know, what do you see the challenge in terms of its platform, how, how good its AI approach is? Well, I think that'll that'll bear out over time, right? I mean, the company's still young. So how many, you know, how many lead compounds are they going to come up with? How will those lead compounds progress, right? I mean, the, the, the sort of proof will be in the pudding as they, you know, move forward in development. It's still early days. So, um, but I think they have a lot of, they have a lot of promise. I think the, the, the data that we reviewed, you know, full disclosure, we're an investor in Inveda. So, you know, some of the data that we looked at was very, was early, but very promising. 
So, you know, I, I think they're going about it in a, in a deeply thoughtful way. I think there's a lot of uh, potential with the technology to, as Viswas said, increase the efficiency of the drug development process, increase the number of hits, um, increase the, you know, throughput of moving those hits successfully, you know, into uh, early you know, preclinical trials, for example, um, but, you know, it's still early days. So I think we'll, we'll see what happens. And the biotech challenge here is that it can actually find novel drugs in the botanical world that's exploring. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, that's been done for thousands of years now, right? So I think there's, there's definitely a tried and true pathway there. I think what uh, Inveda and what Visva is, is really doing is, is trying to increase the throughput of identifying some of those naturally occurring compounds and which ones will could be used for human therapeutic purposes, uh, trying to identify the right diseases or indications that those you know, targets could be applied to. So the way that I think about it, which is a, a very rudimentary way, but it's, it's really just increasing the throughput of what we've done for really thousands of years. And they're applying a stack, a stack of technology to be able to do it in a much higher throughput and much more thoughtful manner. You were interested in hearing from Viswa on leadership issues. Did you hear what you wanted to hear? I did. Yeah. I think he hit on some of the, the, the key points. Um, and so, you know, I think it was really great to get his perspective. And I think, you know, for a lot of the, the younger generation, I think for a lot of the entrepreneurs who are early in their journey or folks who are thinking about starting a company, you know, I would really take a lot of what he said to heart because it's really not just about the, the science. It's not just about the technology. It's about all these other skills that it takes to build a company. And I think he had a really good point uh, about the transition from being a founder to being a CEO. And I just know from the companies uh, that, that I've worked with personally, that is where a lot of uh, founders turned CEOs fall down. Uh, and a lot of them stumble and a lot of them fail. And it causes a huge disruption in the companies as you try to make that transition. And that transition often is not the same skill set and sometimes should be different people as well. Um, but it, I, I think his point is really well taken. It is, it is a different uh, role being a founder versus being a CEO. Well, until next time. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.